Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pogalent has teamed up with Philips TV to host an exclusive event at Abbey Road Studios. Philips is the official TV partner of the legendary studios, famous as the home of iconic artists from the Beatles and Pink Floyd to Oasis, Sam Smith, Frank Ocean and Brockhampton. And this unique event is your chance to experience the next generation of Philips TVs in the home of Cinema Sound. And to learn about the new state-of-the-art Philips OLED Plus 984 TV with its immersive Bowers and Wilkins sound system designed to create a movie experience like never before. To find out how to win your place at the event at the end of November, go to www.pocket-lint.com forward slash Philips OLED. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Lint Podcast. Adobe Max, the company's annual showcase of all things Adobe, has been on this week and associate editor Dan Graben has travelled to Los Angeles to find out more. Meanwhile, I've been chatting to professional street mountain bike rider Danny McCaskill about how he goes about filming his amazing videos, what he thinks of YouTube, and his plans for the future. And Pocalint's Chris Hall walks us through the Samsung Galaxy Fold. First announced in February this year, the foldable phone is finally on sale. But has it been worth the wait? And does it show us what the future of phones is going to be like? But let's go back to Dan first, who joins us down the line from his hotel room in downtown LA. What's caught your eye this week at Adobe Max? So the key thing was Photoshop on iPad. Um, We got it previewed originally a year ago, um, but now it's actually available for people to use. Um, It basically brings the full fat experience of Photoshop that you would get on a PC or Mac to the iPad. It's not a complete reinvention of, it's, it's not a complete transfer so to speak of the desktop app over to the ipad they've been quite clever in what features they've brought over they've 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 concentrated for pure image retouching first um photoshop has sort of morphed over over the years it's going to be 30 years old next year so it's become a a, you know a, a huge bulky tool that um, you know, everyone, uh, some people want all that stuff in there. Some people want a refined experience. And so there's a, there's a real tightrope that Adobe have had to walk here to make sure that, yes, they're bringing the full experience, but, and it's not sort of a cut down app like Photoshop Express or something like that, but, but it actually um, is, is still simple enough for everyone to use, but still good enough for pros to use. Um so I suppose, I mean, I have a number of questions, as you can imagine. I mean, one is, who is this for? I suppose let's start with that one. And then, you know, also is that kind of, as you said, is 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 this a light version or, you know, who's expected to use this or are just people going to go, you know what, I want to use the desktop. So they're the question, they're the two to start so with there's gonna, for 10 points. Yeah, there's, there's, a couple, there's a couple of answers to that. Adobe have been quite clever not to say who it's for, but I think it's for people that, you know, I used to be using Photoshop on the desktop all all the time, so creative pros. Um, and they might need to do some work 
out and about. They want that flexibility. Obviously, with Creative Cloud, you can you can save your images online, um, your your Photoshop documents online, so you you can then access them from any any computer where you're signed into. So you could and, and you can do that on the iPad as well. So it feels like a like an extra tool rather than a replacement tool. If that if that makes sense, right. Um, so kind of like on photo shoots and things like that, where you think, right, I just retouch this here and I can sort of start making notions into what I want to achieve and then maybe finish it on the on the desktop. Yeah, absolutely. Later. And there's another, another aspect to it as well. But, you know, with Apple Pencil, you're a lot closer to the to the experience and, and closer to your work using it on an iPad. Um, you know, you're able to actually, you know, touch your work essentially. And that, that there's kind of an emotional connection there. Whereas if you're sat at a desk using an iMac, um, you know, it's it's not quite the same experience. It's it, it, it's going to appeal more to 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 certain certain people that want to sort of be closest to their work, if that makes sense. Um, there, there's a there's some you know quite quite advanced controls on it that um, they've brought in. There's a there's a sort of touch control that you can use on the screen that's like the shift key on a keyboard. So they're they they're thinking about those people that used to using a you know keyboard shortcuts all the time but you know and that transition to a to a more touch-based interface costings is it just does it just if you've got do you have to buy it separately do you have to is it extra to photoshop do you get it with photoshop you get it with the the, the photoshop plans that that you can the subscriptions on creative cloud so there's a there's a photography plan which is like 10 pounds a month or 10 dollars a month that um that you 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 can use Photoshop for iPad with, or if you've got the full suite of Creative Cloud apps, you've you've got access to it. Um, I think it's a it, it is a it is you know a more a, a more advanced app. If you want something you you know you can paint and you want to paint and draw or, or uh, you know do some of that the the kind of more basic elements. Um, Adobe have also got Fresco, which is their sort of free painting and drawing app that. Um, that they they launched earlier in the year and that's that's for the ipad as well they adobe are also talking about future apps they might do um uh, for the ipad they've announced they're going to do illustrator we think that's going to be sort of out early next year that's obviously quite a advanced package for uh, for vector illustration and um but again it, it makes sense in this kind of progression and they'll probably do their they'll probably do indesign after that i would imagine their sort of page layout app yeah, I suppose as the as the iPads get more and more advanced, and certainly with the iPad Pro and stuff, it's it's kind of we're finding more and more apps making that bridge. Um, and so, do you think that's you know overall was the the feeling very positive at, at the show that that this was happening? Yeah, it is, it is a positive move. I think as well the 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 unknown in the future is we don't know whether Apple are going to suddenly come out with um, ARM based. Uh, MacBooks, which we've, which have been rumoured for a long time, but you know we 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 all know that Apple likes to make its own stuff and wants to be in control of its own stuff, and you know that that seems to be the way the 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 way the way things are going with with macOS and with iOS and iPadOS as well. That it would it would make sense if if apps eventually are, are, are you know iOS first or iPadOS first. So I you know I I, I think. It's all, there's almost a future proofing aspect to it as well. Obviously, Adobe's apps are, are used, you know, by thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the globe. So it makes it makes sense to have that have that in place, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I suppose the last thing that Adobe want is suddenly to Apple to turn around and say, "Hey, guess what? We've moved to an ARM-based 
laptop system and that means your really popular piece of software doesn't work anymore absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and obviously windows is starting to move that way you know we've seen with the surface pro x that they you know microsoft really want to push um, arm-based um, machines as well so um, although these although you know, this is this is a different product, and this hasn't been announced. But, you know, there is a you know you can use full fat Photoshop with touch on on a surface. Um, it, that is that that does seem to be the way things are going. And so, in in you know ten years time, say you know we're talking we're talking a long way out, but it, you know we could be mm. looking at looking at a lot of a lot more arm based machines in in offices and and various places where these apps are used quite extensively. Now, Adobe Max is not only about new products for us to play and and for uh, you know the, the core products. It's also normally where Adobe likes to show off other things that they're working on, either sideline projects, bets for the future, or what have you. Is there anything else that caught your eye? Yeah, so they they um, they've uh, they they do this kind of session at the show called Sneaks, and it's it's quite a, quite a funny session, really. Hmm. Um, and uh, they they basically show real prototype code and. Uh, and stuff that basically hardly works, um, and <laughs> which is always interesting for demos. And the 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 whole idea around it is that these things could be in products next year, five years time, whatever. Um, there was some really cool stuff around audio where um, you know it'd be quite good for this podcast where you can it, it using Adobe's AI technology, it will take out all the. Um, background noise and other other elements um, and really create pure you know pure audio we were shown a demo where um, a guy started recording it in one meeting room um, then was asked to leave the room um, and so he went into an office into the main office and there were phones ringing and all that kind of thing and we the the process was almost one click to clean up that audio and make it consistent um it 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 wasn't quite, but yeah, that is that 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 was, that was the demo. So, um, it, yeah, there's there's a, there's a, there were a lot of things like that, and we were also showing a technology where um, the uh, in, it would be for Photoshop, where um, if you had two family Im- family portrait images or, or family group group portrait images, where you had um, uh, one person missing from each photo the software would analyze the photos and work out who was the missing person and put put them back into it so it was that that was pretty clever stuff i mean that's, both of those have kind of huge ramifications for you know understanding media going forward i suppose the the first one the audio thing sounds like the sort of active noise cancelling that we're seeing on headphones but sort of after the fact on recording which you know obviously is is pretty impressive do you think with the the latter of being able to use AI, was that was that one of the strong features here about AI in, in empowering all these sort of image manipulations and stuff going forward? Yeah, absolutely. There was there was also a demo which um, enabled you to the software analyzed photos to to see if they were faked, and it would actually unfake the photo. So the the demo was shown they made someone's eyes really massive in the in the the the, the image. It obviously analysed that to be manipulated, and it was able to then uh, re reassemble the reassemble the image as it was before, um, and that that's quite interesting. Adobe have actually uh, announced a partnership with Twitter and the New York Times at, at, at Adobe Max as well, where they're going to work on a way that 
um, they'll be able to track the sort of provenance of photos and, uh, and, and videos online. So it's not like a DRM technology, not like a um, rights management technology, but you'd be able to attribute it back to the original author. And that's going to be quite interesting for sort of social sharing and obviously the fake news movement in the, in, in the months and years to come. Um, it's not something that's going to be um, around soon, um, but Adobe have um, said they're going to uh, meet up with various other social media and technology companies over the next coming the coming weeks to actually um, talk to them about you know how they can make it technically possible. Still to come, Chris gives us his opinion on the Samsung Galaxy Fold. The engineering in the hinge is very cool. Um, there is that retro factor. Exactly how long the novelty will last for is difficult to say. Professional street mountain bike rider and Red Bull athlete Danny McCaskill first shot to fame 10 years ago with his almost gravity-defying bike tricks showcased on YouTube. Since his breakthrough YouTube film in 2009, Danny's profile has soared. His current viral success totals over 450 million. Yes, 450 million views on YouTube alone. Danny is also a live show favourite, consistently drawing huge crowds wherever he goes. We caught up with McCaskill to find out what he thinks of YouTube, his plans for the future, and whether fame has changed him. I started asking him what some of the highlights of the last 10 years have been. I don't know where to begin. Um, I suppose some of the sort of main highlights that stand out are some of the videos that I've been able to make uh, with friends over the over the last decade. Um, some standout ones, like the uh, first film I did um, was called Inspired Bicycles, uh, which uh, was around the streets of Edinburgh that kind of kicked things off, kicked off my career. And then the first big one I did for Red Bull was uh, The Way Back Home, which kind of, I suppose, kind of cemented myself. Quite pleased that one kind of worked out. That was around uh, basically doing a journey from Edinburgh back to the Isle of Skye with a camper van and kind of riding on lots of like dams and abandoned things in the hills on the way back. Um, another film I did called Imaginate, um, which we filmed up in uh, an old transport museum in Glasgow uh, where we converted the whole museum into looking like it was my bedroom floor as a kid and we had all these giant sides giant sides so i was like uh, we had like a real tank in there a real f1 car that front flip over and built like a big loop the loop that looks like a hot wheels track and all that kind of stuff so that was pretty cool um made a film up in sky called the ridge uh which was a really fun one a bit of a kind of personal project that we did and i was kind of riding my bike up in some mountains that I don't want to look that from the school bus. I'd never actually really been up there when I was younger, so we were very lucky with the weather. And then, I don't know, countless other projects, really. There's been there's too many to list. Um, maybe, like, another film we did, actually, the last what, the film I did in uh, 2016, that was kind of highlight um, around the Scottish countryside again. So, it's, But there's many more other ones in between the last 10 years, that's for sure. And so do you think that, you know, has there been a stunt that you're most proud of of achieving something that you thought, wow, there's no way I'm going to ever do this, and then you managed to pull it off. It's quite a, I mean, not really. I mean, and a lot of that just a weekly occurrence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, one of the standout kind of tricks I did um, that kind of set a kind of bar for me, I suppose, um, was a, a trick I did in the first film called Inspired Bicycles. I rode along, at the beginning of the film, I rode along a spiky fence, which is like a a wrought iron fence that's got a number of spikes that are flat topped and they're maybe 
15 millimeters across on top and about mm, 15 centimeters apart and the foots the fence itself is about a meter 60 high so of course if you if your bike slips off the spikes then um it's not a very good time let's say <laughs> uh, but that i mean that trick took me four days um and maybe nine hours of riding um and hundreds of attempts to land, you know to get across the other end from electrical box to electrical box but it was that kind of um not mentality but it was you know kind of i never persevered at something like that on my bike um for a film and i kind of learned so many lessons you know by what it was to kind of fail at something and kind of keep going at it over and over and over again um, and that's since you know i've done a lot of other films i've you know spent multiple days trying to land various tricks like trying to jump on a, a giant hay bale that's r- rolling down a hill on my mountain bike and trying to stay on top of it while it's rolling with my bike getting too short or uh, sliding along a log sideways and kind of jumping off or you know hitting my front wheel into a barbed wire fence and front flipping over the other side there's lots of different random kind of tricks i've done over the years that have taken me hundreds of goes but it's kind of um kind of what makes the films i make and that kind of i mean that leads me into a question i had for you which is you know how much planning actually goes into the stunts you know it sounds like a lot yeah, I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of planning. I mean, <clears throat> when I travel, especially when I'm flying, I tend to fly with a little notebook, and um, I kind of I'm constantly jotting down different ideas, often in stickmen form, <laughs> really bad stickmen form. It's like a four year old's drawing them, but it kind of gives me a list of different tricks, ideas. I mean, what I enjoy doing with these films is um, uh basically come up with a concept or, you know, whether sometimes that's, you know, location driven, you know, whether it's an abandoned railway yard or, you know, like a flooded city that, or flooded town that's just come out of the water, it's covered in salt or something like that. Or sometimes it's a bit more um, kind of conceptual, like imaginate where we, you know, we wanted to do a more studio based film, you know, under some controlled lighting, we build all the props. You know, but with with each one of these concepts, it, <clears throat> the thing I enjoy most about them is the the way it allows me to go a little bit outside the box with the with the tricks that I'm able to do and get away with in the film. You know, tricks like uh, in Imaginate, um, I do this trick where I I ride up to a um, giant exercise ball uh, that we had. And I do a front flip um, off the flat ground, land on my back on the exercise ball, and we put that next to a railway track that was supposed to look like a model railway mm-hmm. set. And I land basically two wheels on this railway track and roll along to the end and do some various other tricks. But it allows you to kind of, you know, if I took our exercise ball into the street and did a front flip over it, it would be kind of a bit random. But because it's part of this overall concept, you can kind of legitimize it a little bit and it kind of works to kind of make the whole thing come alive. So that's something I really enjoy working with. And do you find that the tech you've used since, you know, just before we started recording, we were saying that I met you quite a long time ago on the GoPro uh, Hero 4 launch, and now we're seeing the launch of the Hero 8. Do you, you know, has the tech you've used, do you have a stable of tech that you like using? And has that massively changed over the 10 years that you've been recording? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's been a big change uh, for sure in the tech. I mean, 
the first uh, film that I worked on, Inspired Bicycles, we used a, uh, was it a VX1000, Sony VX1000, you know, it was a, a camera that basically, you know, recorded onto DV tape. Right. Um, so, I mean, that was the only expense we had for that film. I, I bought a bunch of tapes. <laughs> and just then it was more just my friend's time just going out and on the streets uh we since kind of stepped things up uh for the way back home we we shifted up to the first slr that you could film with and you could start using nicer lenses it was a kind of age of you know the beginning of things like vimeo early stages of early years of youtube and these kind of more indie kind of film the ability to kind of film digitally in a kind of more cinematic way you know you could uh you kind of have all these little cheap sliders and little jibs, but you, with this kind of simple equipment, you could start making much more cinematic-looking bike films. Um, but one of the things that I found kind of important about those cameras is that they didn't really film any slow motion, which kind of ended up being something to my benefit in some ways, where it kind of meant that everything was in real time, but I think it made it more relatable to the, out in the mainstream audience that ended up watching the films uh, compared with if everything's you know full of slow motion you know and kind of all these kind of um what are they called i can't remember what kind of shots they called you know just slow motion coming at the camera bullet, bullet time Three. kind of matrix kind yeah, of thing. i mean it kind of becomes more action sports based and definitely focuses a little bit more to a, a sort of more focused audience so um and you also needed really good light for that camera as well if you film in a 5d and dull light then it was useless. So it kind of made us, uh, it was made it quite challenging filming Scotland. <laughs> to yeah. get the right. um, and then since then, you know, things have really stepped up, you know, especially things like GoPro came on the scene as well. And it, you know, makes it easier to make my own content where I can just stick a camera on my head um, and go out in the street, you know, whether the streets of Glasgow or whatever I'm in the world and you can kind of start creating your own stuff and kind of passively create it. You know, you just have to press record and, it's quite easy to make something that's, you know, people like to watch. So, yeah. And have you found the use of drones, has that helped as well? Because I noticed some of your later videos have, have got sort of more aerial shots in there as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's I mean, I'm sure you, you talk about it all the time, but it's, it's um, incredible how much the, the te- you know, how much the technology has moved on. I mean, when we were filming the way back home back in 2010, I remember trying to look into whether or not I could float my friend on a little hot air balloon, you know, with the camera so we could somehow get some aerial shots. I remember thinking about this. Or it was like a Cineflex from a helicopter you'd have to get. You know, and then in 2014, I was filming up in the Coolin, the Coolin, on the Coolin Ridge up in the mountains and sky. And um, with that, uh, you know, my friend Lek had a kind of, you had to be a real drone enthusiast to have like a proper drone you know you'd get one bit from dji another bit from another gimbal brand and a different camera and now we fast forward to 2019 and you get these kind of you know little drones off the shelf and even the sub a thousand pound ones are taking amazing shots you know um it's all just firing forward so quickly it's quite amazing and do you think that's changed the landscape of 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 youtube i mean as i say you've been on the platform for quite some time and, you know, in that time, we've seen the rise of the vloggers and the rise of influencers and rise of, you know, even criticism of whether, you know, YouTube is a good place to be or not. How do you, how do you feel that's changed for you? 
it's not i mean it's it's a kind of it's a funny place for me i mean youtube just happens to be the platform that is best to put you know if you're wanting to get your content out to the most people pardon me um I mean, YouTube's the, you know, it's the kind of video database of the internet, isn't it? If you're searching for a video, it's most likely to end up on there. There's other platforms which maybe have slightly higher quality, you know, higher standards of, of um, content on them. You know, like Vimeo is a bit more kind of professional, still got its annoyances. But I don't know, I tried, I mean, I as I say, YouTube just happens to be the kind of place I put the films. I don't necessarily count myself as a YouTuber. You know, I recently did start a YouTube channel because I felt I may as well. It's a thing to have, I suppose, but I kind of like to make these video, you know, the films as if I've never made a film before. And if nobody's ever seen the videos before, um, they can watch this new one and can relate to it in a way, you know, but they don't need to have seen anything else to kind of hopefully enjoy the kind of films we're making, if that makes sense. Fred doesn't. No, it does. I mean, it's kind of you're kind of almost treating it, I suppose, like a like a movie in that you know, yeah, in that Hollywood, exactly. you don't need yeah. to have seen the sequels to to appreciate, yeah. the, you know, the prequels or the sequels or what have you. You know, like making music as well. It's like a band or something. You try, you know, if you're making a new song, you're not wanting to necessarily rely on all your old songs to make your new song good. You want to make your new song the best thing you've made, you know, since or yet, kind of thing. Um, and, you know, you go on YouTube, if you do look at what the top trending stuff is on YouTube, these kind of, oh, my goodness, it's just there's a lot of drivel on there, you know. It's, you do worry for some of the younger generation of what they're what they're aspiring to be in this some of these vlog kind of things. But, you know, I like to think that with these little writing videos, we put out a little bit of kind of quality internet, you know. Um, but, I mean, each to their own. There's, I mean, there's so many. It also opens up a whole different world of opportunity, you know, the internet. So... It's definitely a good thing. So we've talked about the last 10 years, the last decade. What's in store for Danny McCaskill in the next decade? What's well, the big question? question? You know, definitely creaking a little bit more than I used to, you know, back in my early 20s. Uh, I'll be turning 34 this year. Um, definitely I've got, you know, big aspirations still uh, on a writing level, you know, to be putting out um, a lot of big new films. Um, and really, I really want to kind of feel that I'm, I've, pushed myself and my kind of or got the most out of myself and my body you know especially in my kind of younger years but I certainly would like to feel I could still be a professional bike rider you know in the, for the next decade as well um all albeit maybe in the later years I might not be jumping as high as I am now um or gapping as far there's still a lot of different stories to be told around the world um and then this year I've got uh I've got one more big project planned for GoPro. Um, and then we've also got a big one for Red Bull as well, just before Christmas. So I have to keep an eye out in the new year um, for some of the new stuff. So, yeah. The Samsung Galaxy Fold has certainly caught the headlines. Announced at the start of the year, the folding phone from Samsung has endured plenty of false start and criticism already. But with all that behind it, the flagship phone that teases the future is finally on sale in the UK. Pocketlint editor Chris Hall has been reviewing the Galaxy Fold to find out whether it shows us the future of smartphones, whether it's any good, or whether it will be quickly destined to be a forgotten flop. Chris, tell us more. I think the place to start with this is a deal, uh, is, is to address this thing about the criticisms and the critique 
because that's immediately what you associate with the Galaxy Fold. And it's kind of unfortunate for any product when it launches and then suddenly is deemed to be a failure. And that's kind of, you know, you kind of intimated at some of that feeling in your introduction there. And I've just got to say that it really does feel like this is the future. And I think it's important that we look at the Galaxy Fold for what it is and what it's attempting to do, because we've had a whole range of static devices before where you have a flat screen or a, a screen that's slightly bent towards the edges. And there was even the um, the LG Flex in the past that had that curved display that you'll probably remember when they started talking about how you could use plastics instead of glass on the front of the display. And, and Samsung has really taken this to the nth degree in the Samsung Galaxy Fold. And whether you fancy having this phone or owning it, whether you think it's too expensive or not, you can't ignore the fact that Samsung is doing something here with technology and they have made it into a viable mm. product. And this is a very important moment in the future of smartphones. And so that that kind of setting the stage there from you, day-to-day -day use, how's it it's, been? It's an incredible device. It really is an incredible device. Now, you'll know that there was a few small design changes to protect the screen a little bit more around the edges because people were trying to peel off the front of the display because they thought it was a uh, screen protector, um, which is insane because this phone costs about £2,000, so you shouldn't start pulling yeah, it apart. Yeah, yeah. But well, I mean, one of the things that you've got to remember about this is it is a it's a Samsung phone and it pours all of Samsung's experience into the user interface. So it, it, it shows off how adaptive Android is because a lot of the Android apps just adapt to the fact that they are either on the small display on the front or the massive display in the middle when you open it up. And that's a very that's a very good thing. And often there is a seamless interaction between those things. So you can pick, pull your phone out of your pocket. You can glance at the outside display. Fingerprint scanner on the side means you can unlock it, look at that, see your notifications, go through those. Some things you can deal with without opening the phone. And in this case, you're working on a 4.6-inch display, which sounds large in old phone terms, but is very small in new phone terms. But the thing that I immediately found mm -hmm. out was that I couldn't really use the keyboard on that. It, it was just too small. Even trying to swipe through the keyboard and, and do those sorts of things doesn't doesn't really work, and you end up with loads of mistakes. Probably like just trying to think. It's probably the equivalent of going back to like a Nexus Six or something in terms of screen yeah, size. Yeah, I mean, and it's not a it's not a conventional aspect either. A lot of the four and a half, four point six inch phones of the past were a lot wider than this, and this is like a narrow narrower strip. Um, but but it's interesting because there is it it just seems to be so capable. At working in both modes you flip it open and suddenly you're struck by this huge expensive expansive display and in recent times we've been looking at things like 16 by 9 and a display and moving to 21 9 uh, as displays have been getting taller they've been pushing back the bezels now when you open up the galaxy folds you don't have a long thin tall screen you've you're almost going back to a big square instead and that means that for example if you use instagram the Galaxy Fold is superb. It's absolutely amazing because so many Instagram photos are square. It's one of the things that characterizes that as a platform. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're looking at this huge square image, you think this is amazing. It's so much more immersive than so many other devices. It is weird, though, when you're walking down the street and you flip open this phone and you're sort of wrestling with it with two hands 
when you're walking down the road. And that's one of the things that is slightly odd about it, because if you can't do it on the outside display because it's too small, when you open it up to try and do it on the inside of the display, it's almost too big. So when you're standing on the train and you're hanging on to the handrail or whatever, and you're trying mm. to do something complex with your phone, that's where it starts to get a little bit more tricky. And I was gonna, this is one of the main questions I have, because, you know, the big screen sounds exciting and, and all the other stuff. It's just that, is it does it become a chore just flipping open the phone in, you know, I know you and I used to do this when we had flip phones back in the day. Um, and you didn't really think about it then, but like having lived a decade now without phones that, that flip is, is, has it been fascinating going back to a flipping experience? experience. (laughs) Well, that's it. I mean, some of it is about the experience that you get here. Um, The hinge is very cool. Um, There is that retro factor, exactly how long the novelty will last for, is difficult to say because there are some some areas where this is slightly more awkward like when you get into your car and you want to use it for mapping um mm. what sort of mounts do you use do you put it open do you put it closed it's it that, that's where it starts to get a little bit weird but slipping it into your pocket walking out and then opening up this huge thing whenever like just consuming content is amazing but I immediately found that when I went to watch some fancy film on Netflix that was in a wide aspect, you then have these huge black bars that you don't need. Go back to something old that was in like four by three format, something, some old TV show that was never converted for 16 by nine. And it suddenly fits on the display really well. So <laughs> it's really good for watching retro programs because it just seems to fit on the display. Um I will just talk about the crease down the middle. Obviously, the the display bends, so there is a line down the middle, and there is some slight unevenness. You can run your finger across it, and you can feel that point that it's going to bend, but there's no loss of quality there. It's it's more like a a minor ripple, Um, and sometimes you see it. You see it when the brightness isn't so high, it's there, but when the brightness jumps up, you really don't notice it at all, and I've been using it to play Call of Duty, um, because why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And although you, it takes a little bit of time to adapt to the fact that everything is bigger, it just it's so much more immersive. Um, and so, so yeah, it it does feel like this is this is the moment. This is this is a reflection of the future. This is this is the direction that phones could potentially go in. Um, and I think the excited, the really exciting thing about it is that this technology is working. It's it doesn't feel like a concept phone. It's horrendously expensive and you might never justify buying it but it's it's fantastic but i remember the first dvd players that came out were six seven hundred pounds and then by the end of the life of dvds there were a tenor in asda so you know and that was for the for the player not even you know the player was cheaper than the, the discs so i mean that's the final question i have is do you do you see this as a one-off from Samsung or do you think we're going to start to see more of these Are other manufacturers going to all pile in in 2020 and, and suddenly everybody's going to be like, I want a folding phone kind of thing. Or, or is it like at the moment still a kind of it's there for a few, but not for many. I think it's a number of the things that you've just mentioned. Is it going to be a one-off? No, I think it, the thing, one of the things that we know about Samsung is they are very, very aggressive in research and development. They produce a lot of very advanced technologies. They have one of the biggest display businesses 
that there is and they provide displays to a lot of other people so while they're making this phone and putting it out as a samsung phone that doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen in the future there'll be a lot of other people who want to use this technology and samsung will be there to provide it for them they will continue to develop this and they will make a success of it whether it this phone is the beginning of a new series of folding devices is a little bit harder to tell but I don't think this is the end of uh, I don't think this is it. I think this is this is the start. It's not the end. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. Pocket has teamed up with Philips TV to host an exclusive event at Abbey Road Studios. Philips is the official TV partner of the legendary studios, famous as the home of iconic artists from the Beatles and Pink Floyd to Oasis, Sam Smith, Frank Ocean and Brockhampton. And this unique event is your chance to experience the next generation of Philips TVs in the home of Cinema Sound. And to learn about the new state-of-the-art Philips OLED Plus 984 TV with its immersive Bowers and Wilkins sound system designed to create a movie experience like never before. To find out how to win your place at the event at the end of November, go to www.pocket-lint.com forward slash Philips O-L-E-D. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.